You are listening to Radio Free Signs of the Times, broadcasting into the heart of an occupied America. Welcome to this week's Signs of the Times podcast. I'm Henry. I'm Joel. And I'm Scott. This week we are going to talk a little bit about the Iraq War. Not just uh, the Iraq War in isolation, but more so what we believe to be going on behind the Iraq War and maybe talk about some examples of historical precedents for the type of war that is actually being waged in Iraq by the various parties. And the purpose really is just to to try and clarify um, really what we're dealing with here and to cut through some of the uh, the lies and the propaganda that we're fed every day about uh, or from the from the mainstream media about what's really happening about about the reason uh, for the war, um, et cetera, et cetera. It's obvious that things are not going very well in Iraq, not from the point of view of the Iraqi people nor from the point of view of the American occupiers. Three years after the supposed mission accomplished, the situation is completely out of control. Seventy percent of Iraqis are out of work. There are long hours of blackouts. There are long lines for gas when there is gas. The sewer systems have not been rebuilt, and thousands of Iraqis are dying. But despite the, those failings in infrastructure, for example, there, there was a recent report about the the, uh, the massive 100-acre U.S. Uh, embassy that's being built in the middle of Baghdad. and uh, the Bush's way, Palace, as yeah, they call it. And there's absolutely no problem with, uh, apparently, with uh, electricity for, for that building project. Um, Nor in the green zone. Yeah. You know, this is just an example of, uh, of, the, of the intentions, I suppose. It's quite clear the intentions uh, that the U.S. government has towards uh, Iraq and, and all, of the, all of the lies and propaganda about rebuilding Iraq are clearly just that lies and propaganda. And we're told that if the situation is so bad outside of the green zone, it's due to incompetence. Yes, or probably insurgents, you know, blowing up their own power stations because, I don't know, maybe they don't want to have electricity or running water, you know. That's those Iraqis for you, you know. <laughs> they, never <laughs> they never like the, the accoutrements of modern life. No, no, no. They prefer the desert life, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. So, rejest, um, of course. Well, the, the idea that it, it is because of incompetence and a lack of thorough planning beforehand is widely heard in the U.S. media. Funnily enough, it's also the same excuse that's given for why the 9-11 attacks were allowed to happen, is that uh, the U.S. intelligence agencies just were incompetent and they dropped the ball. Mm -hmm. However, what we would like to try to show you tonight is that, in fact, what's going on in Iraq is exactly what was planned for, and if it's happening, it's not happening due to incompetence. It's because this is what they want. Well, yeah, it's like I said before, this, uh, the, the lies and propaganda about uh, the intention to rebuild Iraq and the rebuilding of Iraq that we've heard about going on over the past three years. Anybody with even a, a limited awareness of history uh, and of, of previous empires knows that generally that's uh, not what they do. Uh, they don't uh, invade countries you know, for the good of mankind or for the good of the people in the country, uh, or to, you know, improve their lot or improve their, their infrastructure, improve their country. They, they invade it for their own personal gain, and they generally um, pillage and plunder the country and then just walk away and leave it, and that's exactly what we're seeing in Iraq. I mean, this should be pretty clear to everybody, despite the massive propaganda 
uh, coming out of CNN and the mainstream news. In trying to understand and get to the, the heart of the matter uh, and why uh, the US is in Iraq, why the UK is in Iraq, uh, why Israel appears to have a, a fairly strong hand in it as well, we first of all need to just clarify a few things, I suppose. And the first thing uh, in line with what I just said about empires is that the Iraqi government is entirely controlled and owned essentially by the parties that were involved in the invasion of Iraq. Of course, this includes Israel, but uh, there has been very little obvious evidence of Israeli involvement in Iraq or in the Iraqi government, but we kinda, we should remember that particularly since 9-11, US foreign policy follows very closely the wishes of the State of Israel or is perhaps even dictated by the State of Israel. So whatever the US government is doing in Iraq its control and the way that it's controlling and where it's going with the Iraqi government, uh, you can be pretty sure that Israel is in agreement with their policy on that. And there are documents that go back into the 1980s where Israeli strategists, Israeli academics, in looking at the geopolitical situation in the Middle East, were already proposing at that time that Iraq needed to be conquered and separated into three units. Yeah. So this uh, has been a long-term strategic goal of Israel. Of course, yeah. And uh, that right there would seem to be pretty damning evidence unless you're inclined to believe in coincidences and good luck in terms of international uh, geopolitics. We don't. We tend to think that when people make plans years in advance and then those plans just happen to come to fruition, that that's not a matter of coincidence. And again, in the Israeli connection, Bush on March 20th declared vis-a-vis the coming war in Iran, he said the threat from Iran is, of course, their stated objective to destroy our strong ally Israel. That's a threat, a serious threat, and it's a threat to world peace. I made it clear, and I'll make it clear again, that we will use military might to protect our ally Israel. The coming war in Iran, according to Bush, is to protect his good friend Israel. Certain people have said that that's a a dangerous um, angle for Bush to take. Uh, Not that Bush really knows much about political angles or anything about politics at all. He's really just a puppet. But it's dangerous for Israel and for ordinary Jewish people in Israel because if Bush keeps on saying that the Iran invasion is for the purpose of protecting Israel and then an attack on Iran leads to a lot of American soldiers dying or things getting really bad, well then obviously a lot of American people uh, would blame Israel. Naturally, if they kept on hearing that Bush... Which uh, fits into what we've been saying for years, that the whole thing is a setup and that Jews are being encouraged to come back to Israel so that they'll be in one place to be better annihilated later. Yeah, that certainly seems to be where things are going at, at present. Obviously, there's probably going to be many twists and turns, but the Middle East, to say the least, is not a good place to live at the minute, particularly Iraq, particularly Israel and any of the countries around So getting back to Iraq, there was an article that we ran on the signs page on the 11th of May by Ghali Hassan called Reshuffling the Cards in Iraq. In his article, he makes the point that three months after the war on Iraq in 1991, which devastated the country's infrastructure and killed hundreds of thousands of Iraqi civilians, the government of Saddam Hussein was able to restore basic services and provided the population with food, water, and electricity. Iraq was a very safe and united nation. This was achieved despite the illegal interference of the U.S. and Britain in Iraq affairs and the criminal genocidal sanctions imposed by the U.N. and enforced by the U.S. and Britain. He compares this with three years after the U.S. invasion, 
where he says, Iraq is a destroyed country under a fascist occupation. The Iraqis have no water, no electricity, no jobs, and lack basic health care services. Iraqis at all levels are far worse than before the invasion and the occupation. There are no security and no human rights. Hundreds of thousands of Iraqis, mostly women and children, have been killed by U.S. forces. Iraqis continue to be arrested without charge, tortured, and abused by U.S. forces and their trained militias and death squads. The death squad reference is is an interesting one, um, and it brings us to the the kind of the, the, the heart of the matter uh, in terms of uh, what's going on in Iraq at the minute, because we've all surely uh, heard reports in in the press about uh, Iraq being on the brink of civil war. Although civil war doesn't seem to have broken out just yet, but uh, this also ties into the the idea that Iraq should be broken up into three separate countries because, you know, those people just can't get along. Yeah, so it's you've got un- the Kurds, the Sunnis, and the Shiites. Yeah, it's ungovernable, um, and there's been this long-term kind of uh, history of, of ethnic strife. Of course, you know the fact that Iraq functioned quite well for decades with that ethnic configuration uh, seems to be lost on a lot of people. Well, as a number of observers who know a little more about Iraq than maybe George Bush have pointed out, people like Juan Cole or John Pilger or Robert Fisk, the Sunni and Shiite division is really something that gets magnified in the Western media. But when you're in the country, families and tribes are united because there have been intermarriages between members of the two Islamic sects for, for many, many years. Mm-hmm. But it's essentially, like we've, uh, we may have said in the past, it's it's the division between Sunni and Shia in Iraq is essentially the difference between Presbyterians and Methodists in America. Uh, now, you'd be kind of hard-pushed to see a, a, a religious war breaking out between Presbyterians and Methodists, given that they share the same religion. They're different divisions or uh, different branches of the same religion and very closely associated with each other. And this is the case with Sunni and Shia. I mean, there's been various reports of um, people being asked in Iraq, or in the Iraqis being asked about the civil war and what they thought. Is there civil war? And, and one uh, individual said pretty much exactly what you've said. He said, uh, what do you mean civil war? I mean, I, uh, I, have, most, I have a big family and, and they're, for, they're both Sunni and Shia. And, you know, I'm, I'm a Sunni and my wife is Shia. What do, you want, do you want me to turn around and shoot my wife? So, this, you know, that kind of thing, those kind of reports make a mockery of this idea of, of a civil war that is, trying to be, that is being promoted and is, is being pushed by the Americans and the Israelis and the British and the mainstream media in general. But with that, we have the apparent reality of uh, a lot of um, murders and uh, killings in Iraq of, of ordinary Iraqi people. Uh, we have various bombings, shrine bombings, etc., that have happened over the past six months, year, two years, uh, increasingly over the past uh, six months. For example, I think uh, last month, April, was uh, the highest yet. There were over a thousand uh, Iraqi civilians were killed. A lot of them in pretty pretty gruesome ways. Um, I mean, there's just been indiscriminate uh, uh, shootings, you know, guys in a, in, in a truck or in a van driving to work and, and all of them, you know, 11 of them were, were shot as they were, you know, along the road by a gang of, of guys with guns. Uh, bodies found in the Tigris River, you know, with their heads chopped off, one of them a 10-year-old boy. Um, and then obviously the, the, the famous kind of shrine bombings where, where Sunni or Shia uh, holy sites have been uh, destroyed by, by bombs. 
And of course, this is just reported in, in that way by the mainstream media. But none of the finer details are reported. In particular, there are no questions asked, no real analysis done of oh. why and how this could be happening. Uh, oh, because with the demonization of the Muslim people for the last 20 or 30 years in the Western press, we have been programmed to see Arabs and Muslims as being these religion-crazed people who just go off and, and at the drop of a pin will start murdering each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, that that fact is is a testimony, and it's a frightening testimony to the the all pervasive power of the of the mainstream, the Western mainstream media, because the reality seems to be so far from from that from that line that that Muslims are all kind of crazed fundamentalists that it's just it, it is a completely different reality. The vast majority of Muslims in Arab countries and other Muslim countries around the world are extremely peaceful, peace-loving, friendly people. For example, a close friends of mine have been to Turkey and they were, they were amazed at just how open and friendly ordinary people in the street were to them. Like, mm-hmm. they, they were shown a, a kindness and an openness that they wouldn't be able to find anywhere in any Western society. So it's all the more of a, of a travesty. And all the more tragic that um, that they're being portrayed in this way, that an entire group of people uh, from one of the three major religions, we're talking over a billion people here, uh, have all been labelled or tarred with one with this with this fundamentalist brush. It's just ridiculous. But it's interesting when you look at the fundamentalist ideas in the United States, where you have tens of millions of people who think that Jesus is going to come and going to take them up uh, to to heaven with them, to the right hand of God, with the rapture. And so it's almost as if you've got, on the one hand, these American fundamentalists who believe this absolutely crazy, outrageous thing. Yeah, so they're more likely to believe. To believe outrageous and crazy things of somebody else. Yeah. That other people, other religions share their fundamentalism. Yeah. Because you know, fundamentalism spans across uh, religions. You know, it's it's not it's not associated with religion. Fundamentalism is is a mindset. It's just a, yeah. it's an extremist uh, mindset and probably quite closely tied to psychopathy. But just getting back to the the question of the many killings and murders and bombings in Iraq that have led to this idea expressed or promoted by the press that uh, that there's civil war about to break out in Iraq. Most people will be unaware. Well, probably most people listening to this podcast will be aware, but maybe some won't about the the finer details of that. First of all, is the like we've mentioned the question of why, when Iraq and the Iraqi people were invaded, had their country invaded by uh, a foreign uh, aggressive military, why uh, in response to that, after a certain period of time, they would start to kill each other. Why they would uh, essentially turn on each other and start blowing up each other's uh, uh, holy sites and uh, I mean it's not like there isn't enough American soldiers to attack or American uh, military infrastructure structure to attack so no one seems to want to answer that question, they just want to as we've said, to present this idea that for some reason they're just so crazy that they just want to start killing each other. Oh, uh, so here we might ask our, our listeners to do a little thought experiment and imagine what would happen in whatever country you're a resident or a citizen of if there was a foreign army that came to occupy the country, would the natural reaction of your other citizens, would the natural reaction to be to start shooting each other or would it be to start organizing against the occupier? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, well, obviously that is the case, and that is, has always been the case uh, in these situations where, where countries are invaded. But um, the thing is that the, the specific countries uh, invading cost- countries in question at the minute, uh, America, Britain and Israel, all have, uh, particularly America and Britain, because they've been around for longer, um, have a, a long track record and a lot of experience in mm-hmm. invading other countries. And uh, they know, obviously, from these experiences that this is what happens, that when they invade countries, uh, an insurgency pretty quickly rises up among the indigenous people. And hence, the term counterinsurgency was born, uh, counterinsurgency being the, the, the tactics, the, the, the policies, the military strategy devised by the invading power to combat the resistance that meets them. For example, I have some personal experience of this, given that I grew up in Northern Ireland during that, well, I was born towards the beginning of the Troubles. That started in the late 60s, just from, from living there and from talking to people and having various experiences. The way that, that the occupation, as, as it still is, a, a British uh, government military occupation of a part of Ireland, the way that uh, it's experienced and it's lived on the, by the people there obviously leads people to not have a very enthusiastic or appreciative attitude towards the occupying power, but you also get an idea of the attitudes right down to the ordinary policeman or, or, or soldier in the street, the attitudes when you... Because most people would have some experience with them and, and, and you get a, a, a feeling for the attitudes that these people obviously have been uh, trained in, uh, their, their training, and, and obviously soldiers are given briefings uh, when they go to a certain country and, and those attitudes are filtered down from on high. Obviously, not a lot of people research that much. They just take it as, you know, for what it is and, and, and try to deal with it. But for me, it kind of led me to kind of, you know, want to find out a little bit more about it. And um, and over the years, uh, particularly in recent years after ceasefires and uh, when, when relative peace has broken out, various things come to light about uh, about what was going on at the height of a conflict. And what is accepted now as fact, although maybe not widely known, is that the British military, in, in terms of their occupation of Northern Ireland, they fully embraced, obviously, uh, as part of their uh, historical track record or historical precedent, they, they fully embraced this counterinsurgency uh, policy or t- counterinsurgency strategy when dealing with the IRA, which was their designated enemy at the time. Well, it's interesting in Ireland because you have the British occupier who'd been there for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. They finally got pushed out of the south, and the republic was formed. But then there were the six counties in the north that remained under British occupation. But what we're told is it's this sectarian problem between the Protestants and the Catholics in Ireland, and it's just the damn Irish. Yeah. And so you've got a shifting where the British – who are the problem because they're occupying a country where they have no business being, end up changing their role. And well, yeah, that, that was I actually, know you've done some research into that. Well, yeah, I mean, that's at the time it was well known among uh, people who were involved in the, in the conflict that um, what was being attempted in the, as early as five, six years of the kind of conflict starting proper in the late 70s, early 80s, that the, the British military intelligence uh, or MI5 who were Whitehall, London kind of British government civil servants were developing a, a policy of what they termed Ulsterization of the conflict. Now Ulster is the kind of the province that, that makes up uh, at least part of Northern Ireland and um, their very conscious uh, strategy was to 
uh, try and, as you say, get rid of this um, correct perception that most people had that, that the cause of the conflict was... Uh, the British occupation. Yeah, was an occupying power in, in another country and to turn it into a, an internal problem and that they eventually, if they push that for long enough, then they can adopt the role of, um, of a peacekeeping force. And essentially, like you're saying, the the real source of the conflict is completely subverted and it's presented as something else altogether. And particularly with, that, with those kind of sectarian conflicts, people, the world public tends to kind of uh, lose interest very quickly after a while, you know, because it gets too complicated and it gets boring. And they obviously knew this as well, and this is one of the strategies that they use, you know. But other strategies that were used... And these are, again, part of a long-standing kind of uh, understanding of how to deal with the counterinsurgency, as they call it, is to identify your enemy and then attack the support base of, of, of your enemy. Now, mm-hmm. in the case of the IRA, it was, the support base was the, the kind of Irish Catholic community of, of Northern Ireland. And obviously there was conflict between the, the Protestants uh, at the time who saw themselves as British and were supported by the British military and the British police. But in order to attack the support base of the IRA, which, uh, as I said, was the Catholic community, well, they, I suppose they literally attacked them in, in terms of, uh, by way of agents, they uh, they would have used uh, members of the paramilitary, uh, the, the loyalists of the British uh, paramilitaries in Northern Ireland, and they would have used them to attack Catholics, but also to attack their own, and I put those words in quotes, their own people, because these people don't really see, uh, they have no real allegiances, they're just in it for the fun or for winning the war or for... I don't know, keeping it going probably is the main reason. So they would attack members of the Protestant community who the IRA supposedly were not not necessarily in conflict with but were in opposition to, and then that would, the blame would be on the uh, would, would, would land on the IRA and they would be demonized, and then there would be justification to attack them back. And uh, another example would be a, a very explicit example. Now, this, I don't think this has been put forward by many people who have uh, written or, or commented on the matter but on Bloody Sunday, which most people are aware of when the British uh, paratroopers, the, uh, the SAS essentially, at a civil rights march in Derry, uh, they basically shot 13 Catholics and um, in fact an inquiry just finished uh, not so long ago but at the time it was said that it was just you know, there was, uh, initially they said they were shot at which wasn't true at all, there was no kind of resistance to them at all, it was a peaceful march for civil rights and afterwards they say that they just lost control. But you're talking about the cream of the cream of British military here who are trained to to do anything under any conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea that they lost control is ridiculous. The only, they were ordered. The only obvious conclusion they were ordered to do it. Now why were they ordered to do that? Just to shoot 13 people, in, innocent people who had no relationship with the armed conflict at all. Well, I mean, one obvious explanation is that, uh, and this part is part again of the counterinsurgency uh, strategy to demoralize the, the support base of these insurgents or the insurgents themselves, uh, is to just attack them, to indiscriminately kill people who are non combatants and thereby strike a blow, thereby hopefully push things in, in the direction that you want them to go. But that's just an example that I can kind of speak of. You know, personally, but, but to draw the lesson out again for what we've seen in Ireland, to begin to draw the parallels back to Iraq, we see a situation where there's an occupying force. Mm-hmm. The occupying force moves in and begins to work at existing differences, mm-hmm. whatever they may be, within mm-hmm. a local population, mm-hmm. to set that local population to lockerheads, yeah. so that the occupying force can then step in and be the peacekeeper, can be the mediator yeah. to the justify their, con- 
their continuing occupation. Yeah, I mean, in, in Northern Ireland, it was pretty easy for them because there were already existing differences uh, because mm-hmm. of the kind of partition of the country and, mm-hmm. and the fact that you have two communities with different aspirations living in the same community. So it was very easy to to exacerbate, exacerbate those dif- yeah. differences. But in Iraq, uh, it's not so easy, like as we've said already, about the fact that uh, Sunni and Shia have intermarried and, and they're essentially one people to a large extent. But still, that doesn't stop them from trying to provoke these differences and to create a civil war, tr- create a... It may take a longer amount of time, but yeah. if they continue to do this and they continue to insist on the big lie that yeah. this is a civil war, then eventually... They'll get what they what they want. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's um, like I said, they they use the term in Northern Ireland, the Ulsterization of the conflict, which was the sectarianization of the conflict or the pitching of the conflict in in, in an internal sectarian problem. Um, well, we can call it the Iraqization of the Iraq invasion. I it's not it's not uh, uh, an invasion by the U.S. on a, on a sovereign nation. It's it's it, the conflict has its source in an ethnic uh, struggle that has just been. You know, below the surface, and all it took was you know the U.S. to go in there and try and get do some good, man. get rid of that guy, and give them give them a little bit of freedom and democracy, and look what happens. It all boils over, and that's just that's what it is. And that's what will play on Fox News, and that's what people will believe. Yeah, and it's a load of bullshit. It doesn't stand up to logical analysis. It just doesn't stand up to common sense. And I suppose that's the one thing they want to stop people doing is actually using a little bit of common sense and their own minds to look at the situation. And obviously, to use common sense and to analyse the situation in Iraq, you're going to need a little bit of information, and that's what they keep from people as well. Mm. They give them this abridged, sanitised version of what's happening. But then again, most people don't actually care about it, you know. I don't know if it's this, the case that it's this abridged, sanitised, kind of confusing version of events that they get that turns people off, or whether they just wouldn't care anyway, even if they were to be given all the details, you know. Well, it's so far off. <clears throat> many, many Americans can't even locate Iraq on a map. Mm. So it's got no reality to them unless they have a son or a daughter over there fighting. Yeah. Just to get back, I mean, just to give some examples of what we're talking about here. Um, in March, uh, just a couple of months ago, you had a U.S. contractor, one of these members of the private armies that the U.S. government has used, in fact, for a long time and is using around the world at the minute, was stopped driving his car uh, full of explosives guns, essentially bombs, the kind of bombs that have been going off, uh, car bombs, etc., that have been going off in Iraq and being blamed on, on Al-Qaeda or Sunni or Shia militia. And that's another point, actually, that, that they blame. They say, well, maybe it's not Sunni or Shia fighting each other, but it's Al-Qaeda. They're the ones doing all the bombings and the killings. Well, somebody explain that evil Zarqawi. Yeah, somebody explained to me why uh, uh, an Islamic terror organization would want to kill Islamic people in Iraq. Uh, does that further their goal? Is that how they're going to bring down the great Satan? by killing Iraqi people. Let's get real, you know. Another example is uh, last September when you had two... The two British... Two SAS guys yeah. and their faces plastered across uh, at least a few newspapers sitting there with uh, bandages on their heads and looking a little bit unhappy were caught dressed in... And you can... I mean, anybody who hasn't read this story needs to, needs to read it. Uh, they were caught dressed in full Arab garb driving a car with the trunk full of explosives and shooting at Iraqi policemen, uh, and they were heading somewhere with their car, maybe to leave it somewhere, and then walk away, and then suddenly you have another uh, suicide bombing. 
so these are the kind of things that have been going on. There are other, other reports um, from John Kaminsky and, and an article he wrote. Uh, it, it appeared on other websites, but I'm just referencing John Kaminsky because uh, we like him. In an article, um, he wrote Six Strategies for Senseless Slaughter. He, he quotes a couple of uh, reports uh, where a guy and his son, an Iraqi man, and his son were stopped at a U.S. military checkpoint. He had a load of melons, I think, in the back of his truck. And the uh, the soldier that stopped him was talking to him for quite a while. And, and then after a period of five or five or ten minutes, he said, OK, uh, you can go now. But he told him that he, he needed to go to an embassy, uh, or, or, or not an embassy, but some building in Baghdad uh, to get some papers that he needed. Uh, so he he accepted, you know, probably f- afraid that he'd be shot if he didn't accept. So he, he drives on uh, and his son then tells him, uh, as he's driving along, said, you know, while you were talking to that uh, U.S. soldier, there was an, the other one that was there, he was around the back, and he was doing something to the back of the van. So the Iraqi man got suspicious, pulled his car over to the side of the road, rummaged about in the melons in the back of his van and found a bomb. And there are various other reports. Uh, well, there, like there was that. a report that came out in the Boston Globe. It says, the FBI's counterterrorism unit has launched a broad investigation of U.S.-based theft rings after discovering that some of the vehicles used in deadly car bombings in Iraq, including attacks that killed U.S. troops and Iraqi civilians, were probably stolen in the United States, according to senior government officials. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is so outrageous. They want us to believe that al-Qaeda has a car theft ring in in the United States, and they're stealing cars in the United States, and then they're shipping them. To, to, be car, to be car bombs in Iraq, yeah. It's outrageous. Yeah. But people believe it, you know, and this is the crazy thing about it. We, we just, you know, it, it blows us away that people continue to believe this if they even hear about it, I suppose. That's, that's the point. But there's another story today in the uh, in the UK Mirror about um, a shipment of 200,000 uh, AK-47s that went missing recently that were destined for the Iraqi security forces. The official report says that uh, these 200,000 guns may have been smuggled uh, to terrorists unnamed terrorists, obviously Al-Qaeda or someone like that. The report says that the 99-ton cache of AK-47s was to have been secretly flown out from a U.S. base in Bosnia, but the four plane loads of arms have vanished. (laughs) Orders... It gets better, it gets better. (laughs) Orders for the deal to go ahead were given by the U.S. Department of Defence, but the work was contracted out via a complex web of private arms traders. Wow. Very complex, so complex that they disappeared. And this is, you know, I mean, you hear about it all the time. You know, international arms deals going awry, you know, they just disappear from your triangle. I don't know what happens to them. Interestingly as well, the the Moldovan airline that was used to uh, transport the shipment was uh, condemned by the US in 2003 for smuggling arms to Liberia. And as if that wasn't enough, an amnesty uh, chief spokesman said that it is unbelievable that no one can account for 200,000 assault rifles. He said, if these weapons have gone missing, it's a terrifying prospect. American defense chiefs hired a U.S. firm to take the guns from the 90s Bosnian War to Iraq. Yeah, U.S. firms all over it. There were guns that were used in the 90s in the Bosnian War. The Department of Defense authorized it. U.S. firms were carrying it. Uh, U.S. Um, international arms dealers lost it. Lost it in quotes. Interestingly, though, when the reporter of the story asked the coalition force in Iraq about, you know, did they know that they were expected to get 200,000 AK-47s, he confirmed that he had not received any weapons from Bosnia. 
and added that they were not aware of any purchases for Iraq from Bosnia. And interestingly as well, the Moldovan airline that we mentioned that used the, that was used to transport the AK-47 was stripped of its license by national authorities one day before the shipment. So we have the Department of Defense signing a contract supposedly to equip Iraqi security forces with 200,000 AK-47s, but at the other end, in Iraq, the coalition authorities have no idea, have never heard about this, and had no, uh, no awareness of being expected to receive any weapons. And in the middle... You have U.S. arms dealers and uh, U.S. firms and a U.S. army military base in Bosnia. Somewhere in the middle there, they all got disappeared. And now, unfortunately, they're going to end up in the hands of terrorists. You figure it out yourself. <laughs> Mission accomplished. The other thing, actually, interestingly, about the guns, it's just the story brought to mind, um, a story, two stories, actually. One from March this year, from The Guardian, which uh, says uh, UK guns in Al-Qaeda hands. So not only only the Americans uh, losing their guns uh, or kind of accidentally accidentally giving them to Al-Qaeda, but the UK is doing it as well. Yeah, thousands of weapons supplied to Iraq by British arms companies have fallen into the hands of Al-Qaeda terrorists targeting UK troops. What a disaster. You'd almost think that they wanted to kind of keep the war going or something. No, no, no. It just shows this web of deceit that is Al-Qaeda, that is everywhere. But the interesting thing about this story is that, that, that in this case, there were 20,318 Beretta 92S pistols, which are brand-new Beretta Italian-made pistols. These all disappeared, got misplaced, and they think that, obviously, if they went towards Iraq and they didn't get to where they were going in Iraq, then obviously they, they got stolen by Al-Qaeda, you know. So um, and that's how that's how stringent and how you know how many checks and uh, how rigorous the the security is around shipping of you know multi million dollar shipments of arms are. Al Qaeda just you know runs in, steals them off the back of a truck, and runs away. No one knows what happened to him. But the interesting thing about this is that the Berettas, in, in this story um, from March of this year, uh, there was another story from last year from 2005, uh, and it was in an Italian daily newspaper, Corriere della Sera, which is a, a major mainstream newspaper in Italy, from May 20th, 2005. The title is US Tells Rome That Iraqi Insurgents Are Using Italian Firearms. And these, again, are the brand-new Brada pistols. But the most interesting thing about this is that the pistols that are being used in this report were told that the pistols that, that were found with some insurgents or some Al-Qaeda members, or we're not told exactly who they are, uh, just that they're enemies, that they're not British or American troops. The interesting thing about these pistols is that the serial numbers were missing from all of them, and apparently these serial numbers are, are printed on every single pistol, and it identifies each pistol. But these ones that were found had no serial numbers whatsoever. They either came off the production line with none, with, with, without without the serial number, or they were they were completely professionally removed by high-tech, some kind of high-tech device is what the report says to, to remove them. Essentially what they're saying is that the pistols looked like they had no serial number whatsoever. And rather than just say, well, they obviously come off the production line with no serial number, they try to say, well, maybe someone removed them, maybe the, the terrorist removed them with their high-tech <laughs> uh, you know, polishing device or something that could make it look like there was no serial number. The point is that, and the story actually says it at the end, the lack of serial numbers suggests that the weapons were intended for intelligence operations or terrorist cells with substantial government backing. 
So the point is that these are the same pistols in this report from 2005 that are being reported also again, possibly, because we're not sure if it's the same shipment, or I think there were multiple shipments that were, report, that were reported missing in the Guardian report of, of March of this year. And they're saying that they were destined for the Iraqi security forces, the Iraqi police. In such a situation, there would be no reason for them not to have serial numbers. They're official Iraqi government pistols. They should have serial numbers. Mm-hmm. They would have serial numbers. But these pistols came off the production line without serial numbers, which as the Italian report says, suggests that they were for intelligence operations or terrorist cells with substantial government backing. That says it all. So that kind of says it all. That says that they were designed specifically to be given to... Be to lost. Yeah. <laughs> to be lost in Parties shipment. unknown, designed to be lost, and designed to be untraceable. In a certain way, brings us up to the issue of the death squads, the death squads that are being trained by the CIA. Uh, these death squads are not... The terrorists, well, they're not the Iraqi insurgents or al-Qaeda. These are the death squads that work within the uh, puppet government in Iraq that are part of either the Iraqi police, the Iraqi military. And again, this is a hallmark of the way an occupying power works. The United States, back when it invaded uh, the Philippines back at the beginning of the 20th century, had death squads that would go through and and kill civilians, wipe out entire villages. Mm-hmm. In, in Vietnam, Viet- in Vietnam, Project Phoenix, yep. where fifty thousand people were killed by U.S. trained death squads. Yeah, that was a very good example of attacking the Viet Cong support base. Mm-hmm. That's that was part of U.S. Uh, counterinsurgency strategy, which very deliberately attacked and murdered. Uh, you know, my lie was just one. It was my lie was kind of like the Abu Ghraib. In a way, it, it was, was the one that it, it was public. It was the limited hangout. Oh, this is just a one-off. Oh, they're terrible soldiers. But this was we're talking about, as you say, fifty thousand people, not one hundred villagers. We're talking about fifty thousand in, in a deliberately orchestrated uh, campaign of murder of ordinary civilians to pacify them. I think mm-hmm. is the way that they describe it. This is how you pacify uh, the insurgency? You, you attack uh, civilians. Of course, in Latin America during the Reagan administration. In uh, El Salvador, you had death squads, and there there were 300,000 people that were killed yeah. with the knowledge, the support, the complicity of the United States government. Yeah, it's actually interesting because I have a quote here by um, an American historian, Greg Grandin, who wrote a recent book, Empire's Workshop, and he says that once in office, President Reagan came down hard on Central America, in effect letting his administration's most committed militarists set and execute policy. Now... That's true, but I have a problem with the idea that Reagan, that he ceded control to his militarists or, or, or military intelligence uh, because, you know, Reagan, obviously, like Bush, was just a puppet. This is, there's almost like a, a missing of the point there in that really no U.S. government kind of signs off on policies like this. They go on behind the president's back in a large number of cases, mainly because the president just doesn't need to know. Mm-hmm. Not that he wouldn't support it, but he's just, he's just a puppet. But at the same time, you know, all over South America... During the two terms of Reagan's policy and before and after, these kind of activities of funding death squads in various countries in order to maintain American control in the regions, it was going on as a matter of policy. And and there's a link between those death squads and what's going on in Iraq because it's the same CIA people who right. were organizing these death squads in El Salvador yeah. who are now training the yeah. Iraqi death squads. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, the, 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 there's been talk of the Iraqi death squad out of the Interior Ministry, mm-hmm. uh, but, I mean, the Interior Ministry is controlled, like the government in Iraq. Uh, it's not really a government, it's just, I mean, it's it's the CIA. They, they're completely running the show. So if there's any death squads coming out of the Iraqi government, it's it's CIA death squads. There's also, in, in Colombia at the minute, in, in 2001, there was a story about uh, a missionary woman and her child were sh- who were in a plane. The plane was shot down and they were both killed. Uh, flying over Colombia, she was she was flying out of Colombia, and uh, as it turned out, um, a U.S. one of these U.S. security contractors was involved in pinpointing a plane that he thought was smuggling drugs. So these U.S. kind of security contractors slash death squads are involved in the drug trade, the security, and also maybe the drug runners for. The U.S. drug trade, and just to be clear here, uh, the U.S. claims that it's you know it's trying to you know stamp out the drug trade in in places like Colombia, but what they're trying to do is stamp out any Colombians or anybody else mus- muscling in on the trade. That's exactly what they're doing. So, yeah. So these people, I mean, it's if I was tr- to try to divide it up a little bit, there are maybe like three or four distinct, possibly distinct to some degree, groups that are involved in these kind of covert operations. Um, Obviously, you have like the the death squads that are co-opted or employed members of the Iraqi police force who are doing the the bidding of the CIA. Then you have international mercenaries, possibly from guys who were used in in Bosnia. Basically, you know, they could be of any nationality, but just essentially international mercenaries who are who are guns for hire, who will kill anybody and uh, uh, for the right price. Then you have the U.S. contractors who are U.S. citizens working for these companies like Kellogg's Brown and Root and uh, Blackwater and Dincorp and stuff like that, most of whom are actually established by ex-U.S. generals. This is, they're moving to the corporate sector after their, their military careers and they employ ex-military men. Their mainly. retirement hobbies. <clears throat> yeah, and employ ex-military men who, who served under them and who also retired who wanted to move out of the military and they move into these uh, security contractor companies. And usually included in the, in the members of these companies, and, and they're you know hundreds and hundreds and even thousands strong in terms of their employees. You've got a lot of guys there who were in the military for quite a long time and who really enjoyed the killing part of being in the military, and uh, you know wanted to do a bit of freelance work afterwards. They're you know? the people, they're the psychopaths that Lobachevsky calls the the Jekylls. Yes. And then after that, that's three. Then after that, you've got the actual intelligence, military intelligence, or just uh, intelligence agents of the various countries that are involved, Israel, the Mossad, the CIA themselves, or other uh, groups within the CIA, and British intelligence also, who are actually carrying out their own little specialised jobs here and there. So that's basically the reality of the situation in Iraq and we're talking about obviously we're talking about the U.S. government that is sanctioning, uh, and this obviously this is sanctioned by the U.S. government because this was the plan that they drew up prior to the invasion of and course, the occupation. Yeah. A, the, this was their intention all along. And a military analyst, uh, William Arkin, in the Los Angeles Times in 2002, he wrote a, an article called "The uh, The Secret War." Which states, frustrated by intelligence failures, the Defense Department is dramatically expanding its black word of covert operations in what may well be the largest expansion of covert action by the armed forces since the Vietnam era. The Bush administration has turned to what the Pentagon calls the black world to press the war on terrorism and weapons of mass destruction. Sure. The Defense Department is building up an elite secret army with resources stretching across the full spectrum of covert abilities. 
The increasingly dominant role of the military, Pentagon officials say, reflects frustration at the highest levels of government that the performance of the intelligence community, law enforcement agencies and much of the burgeoning homeland security apparatus is basically not doing its job. This is their problem. Um, and we see this this week, the but, fruits of this with what's happened with the CIA. Yeah. The destruction of the CIA so that the covert operations and intelligence gathering could be moved to the Pentagon mm. where it will be under the thumb of Rumsfeld and the neocons. Yeah. And this report says that it reflects the desire of the Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld, to gain greater control over the war on terror, greater overall control on the war on terror. Now, notice it doesn't say to end the war on terror, to win the war on terror. He wants to control the war on terror. That means to keep it going, we could, we could suggest... And to possibly, you know, how do you control something? Well, you know, you keep complete control of it. You, you, you don't want to end it, you want to control it. You want to fight it on both sides. You want to make sure it goes in the direction you want it to go. You want to manage it. Yeah, I mean, the specific part of this where it says that uh, Rumsfeld's Influential Defense Science Board summer study on special operations and joint forces in support of countering terrorism says in its classified outbrief that the global war on terrorism requires new strategies, postures, and organization. The board recommends creation of a super intelligence support activity, an organization it dubs the Proactive Preemptive Operations Group, P2OG, to bring together CIA and military covert action, information warfare, intelligence, and cover and deception. Among other things, this body would launch secret operations aimed, aimed at stimulating reactions among terrorists and states possessing weapons of mass destruction. You've got to love their terminology. That is, for instance, prodding terrorist cells into action and exposing themselves to quick response attacks by U.S. forces. <laughs> this is war on terror. Prodding so-called, I mean, they're calling the Iraqi resistance terrorists. So, you know, they're prodding them by killing them. And then they're claiming that they're terrorists. There's they're no killing point. innocent Iraqis. They're killing civilians. Yes, and calling so they them can blame it on the terrorists. Yeah, it gets very convoluted. Yes, it's not you know they they prod it so that they get a reaction and then they can claim that that is terrorism that the mm -hmm. terrorism exists. This is like this is the words and the policy publicly available of of Donald Rumsfeld and the Pentagon. So the thing is, you know, the reality of it is that we're dealing with people here who. We're talking about Donald Rumsfeld, and we're talking about Dick Cheney, and we're talking about the people, more importantly, the people behind them that none of us know who have been pushing these kind of policies on the world, on humanity, for hundreds of years. These types of people, they seem to just maintain their hold on power throughout generations, and they create war and death and suffering throughout the planet uh, over and over again and, you know, getting down to the nitty-gritty, we're talking about, you know, 10-year-old boys being beheaded in Iraq. This is as hard as it might be for some people to believe or to accept. This is the face of the U.S. government. This is the face of the British government. This is the face of the Israeli government. 10-year-old Palestinian girls being shot 20 times in the body by Israeli defense, right, defense forces. Yeah. But the people who are orchestrating this and are pushing this and making this happen are people, you know, they, the closest analogy is like an alligator, you know? I mean, the kind of thing that you expect from an alligator, the kind of uh, emotional response you'd expect from an alligator or the compassion or the empathy. There simply is none. 
they have none whatsoever. People who butcher innocent children in the same way that a butcher butchers cows with the same lack of feeling. Uh, that might sound extreme, but that's the reality of the situation. All you have to do is look around you, and you'll see that's what we're dealing with. On that, we'll end it for this week. For more information, you can come to our website, www.signs-of-the-times.org. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. 